John chapter 12, if you will. That's the outline out. John chapter 12. Remember last week we did a brief overview of the Gospel of John just to remind us where we are. We're coming to the close of this first major section of John, chapters 1 through 12. Um, we've called it the Book of Signs. It is the public ministry of Jesus. Um, it is uh, his testifying to the world that he's Messiah, um, telling about what he's come to accomplish as Christ. And after chapter 12, through the rest of the book, pretty much, we, we come to what's called the Book of Glory, where he is done with his public ministry. It's a time of intimacy with his disciples, preparing them for his cross, and then ultimately his, his passion. So his public ministry is coming to a close now um, in chapter 12, and he's just performed this sign in chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead, which is going to send ripple effects out into the rest of his um, ministry and the rest of this gospel um, as a result of raising Lazarus from the dead many people are coming away believing in Christ um, whether it's positive faith or not remember there's a mixture of true and false faith in John there's still this enthusiasm this faith in Christ that that's going about because people have seen what what he's done look look at chapter 11 verse 45 it says many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and seeing what he did, believed in him. Go over to chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned Jesus was there and came, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus and be raised from the dead. And then drop your eyes down to verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. This is the triumphal entry. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him, the triumphal entry, was that they heard he had done this signs. This is a massive movement that, that, that's resulting from people's excitement of what Christ has, has done, this enthusiasm of the crowd and faith in, in Christ. And the Pharisees we saw last time in the end of chapter 11 respond um, by saying that this kind of enthusiasm has to be stopped. It has to be uh, put down. Um, if they continue to believe Jesus as Messiah, it's going to bring the heavy hand of Rome down. Um, and they want to maintain their power. They want to maintain their prestige as the religious leaders. And so Christ has to be stopped. Um, and from chapter 11 on, in God's amazing providence, they determine um, that he must die. So preparations were being made there in chapter 11, and as we come to chapter 12, more preparations are going to be made um, for the death of Christ. Um, his hour is drawing near. Um, he returns to this hostile area in preparation. Remember at the end of chapter 11, he departed, he went back into hiding. His hour has not fully come, and now he comes back. Um, this hostile area prepares. Um, he's going to be prepared for death by a loving disciple in this story. And Judas is going to be prepared, moved even closer to betraying Christ. So before we dive into the story, I just want to back up for a minute and, and talk um, about a, a major theme which has pervaded this gospel, and, and that is of true and false discipleship. 
because uh, we're going to get another portrait in our story of, of a contrast between true and false disciples. Um, what do you remember are some of the major differences between, between the two? Um, they're often indistinguishable at first, um, and yet it becomes obvious, and Jesus points out ways in which they're distinguished. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something about persevering. Perseverance is major. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So the initial start is very important, um, but the kind of faith that is is evidenced by the way one perseveres. What else? What are some differences between true and false disciples in, in John? <clears throat> Number of things you could say. They're looking yeah. for uh, the false disciples are looking to have their physical needs met. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah, I think we call that earthly mindedness. Right? They're just so tied to this, this earth. There's nothing wrong with care for your physical needs, but there's a preoccupation with this life which blinded them to the glories of Christ, to their spiritual needs that Christ had come to accomplish and provide. Um, and then a dissatisfaction in Christ when he didn't meet their demands. Right? It's good. What else? True and false disciples. Yeah. Teachable spirit as Christ was, mm. was uh, growing and correcting some thinking. Mm those that are consumed and then want to care about what Christ says, right. we see that through, uh, through his teaching. Amen. Yep, especially in chapter 8 where he says, um, those who abide in my word are truly my disciples. They're real disciples, right? And then he gives them some pretty hard things about their spiritual condition, enslavement to sin. They don't like it and they, they run away. They, they prove they're not disciples, right? So you abide in his, in his word. So it's good. So there's a number of things this, this gospel has been trying to teach us about um, these two categories of people. And this morning we're going to get another portrait of true discipleship. And it's a beautiful story, one you're very familiar with. Um, I've entitled it Two Contrasts, which sets the stage for the beginning of Christ's Passion Week. This passage is sandwiched in between the, the Jewish leadership planning to put him to death. So it happens at the end of chapter 11, and then it happens at the end of this passage. Um, it's there, they're plotting his death. And then at the very middle of this passage, we also get a false disciple, Judas, who's going to betray him. Um, so it's bookended by this opposition to Christ, and then there's also the contrast of Judas in the middle of it, who's a pretender, who's a false disciple. And around all of that, we, all, we get a portrait of, of true discipleship. Um, we receive the first contrast here in verses 1 through 8. The contrast between affectionate devotion and covetous contempt. Look at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. First, um, 
contrast the, the disciple that we receive, glimpse that is true disciples respond to the person and work of Christ with lavish love. That's what we get here. True disciples respond with lavish love. John begins by, by giving us the setting here. John, he tells us that uh, Jesus returns to Bethany with a, with a purposeful mission. So you can see at the beginning here, Passover is drawing near. We're six days away from Passover. Um, it was getting close at the end of chapter 11. Jesus retreats, hides himself, and now we're only six days away, and he comes out of hiding, and he comes back. His appointed hour to die is coming, and so he intentionally returns. Again, this is just another example. He's in perfect control. He will not die any sooner um, than the Father has determined him to die. <clears throat> so under the Father's sovereign control, and Jesus is under um, control, he returns to Bethany on purpose in order to die. Um, his death was not an accident. It was not something that happened against his will. He said back in chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. That's what he's doing here. He's coming back on purpose into this hostile area because Passover is at hand. So he returns here, and uh, he returns to danger on purpose. Look at verse 1 again. Um, it says, he came to Bethany um, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Um, now, why does it mention Lazarus again here, whom Jesus raised from the dead? I mean, we certainly haven't forgotten what happened one chapter ago, right? He doesn't need to give these details. But I think he, he tells us this because he wants us to see that this story, and especially what Mary's going to do, is flowing out of and in response to what Christ performed for Lazarus. Um, so this whole story is coming from. The family didn't love Jesus just for his miracles, but their faith and their love for him was strengthened by this sign, by what they have seen him accomplish. Look at verse 2. It says, They gave for him a dinner there. <clears throat> so upon returning back to Bethany, they, they, they threw him a reception, a dinner reception, a banquet. It's probably in order to thank him and, and praise him for what he has just done for this family. Uh, raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, it's a celebration of the life of Lazarus, and Lazarus is, is there reclining at the table with them. So can you imagine the conversations that they were having? That would have been pretty amazing. Uh, Martha is in her usual place serving. And we know about Martha, John 10, she's serving. Um, in other words, these are faithful disciples who are loving and honoring Christ. Um, according to Matthew and Mark, um, they both record this story as well. This has all taken place at the home of a man named Simon the leper. We don't know much about who this guy is. He lives in Bethany, uh, perhaps a relative, family friend. But either way, his name tells us Simon the leper, he's no longer a leper, right? Which means that he probably also was healed by Christ. So the picture we get here is that all around this table and serving Christ are faithful, loving disciples. They're here to honor Christ. So that's the setting. So hostility outside the home 
and warm, loving honor for Christ inside the home. And it's all in response to his abundant love and the glory they've, they've, they've just seen in this sign. And with all that going on, at some point in this dinner, Mary gets up and does something which must have silenced the entire room. What is verse 3 here? He returns to danger, he returns to disciples, and then in verse 3, Mary responds to the glory and grace of Christ with affectionate devotion. Look at verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of, of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. We're first told about the, the lavishness of her, her act. Um, it's during dinner. She gets up and she goes and gets, gets what's most certainly the most valuable, costly item in her possession. It is this flask which contains precious ointment or perfume. We're told later that it valued about 300 denarii, or denarii. Um, a denarius was a single day's wage. So we're talking a year's wage is what this value is. So modern day, what's that? $40,000, $50,000 equivalent to what you would make in a year? It's a lot of money. So perhaps it was an heirloom passed down um, generation to generation she inherited. We don't know how she got it. We just know this is very costly. Why was it so costly? Look, he gives us three reasons. First is because the amount of it. He says a pound or a liter. This would be a Roman liter, about 11 ounces. So you ladies who are into essential oils, uh, 11 ounces is quite a bit. Um, it's a lot. It's a liter. It was also owing to the purity of it. It says it was genuine, or it was pure. And then the value was owing to the rarity of it. It was nard, or spikenard. Um, it was a very exotic um, oil, or uh, ointment. Uh, it came from the roots of a spikenard plant in northern India. Um, it's where it came from, still, it's where it still comes from. Um, and uh, it was very precious. And Mary takes this flask, and, and Mark tells us that she broke it. She breaks the neck of it off so she can pour the entire contents of it out. And um, that's what she does. And, uh, and Matthew and Mark also tell us that she poured it lavishly on Christ, starting with his, his head mainly, pouring it all, all over him. But John tells us something a bit different. Look what he says here. He doesn't mention the head of Christ. He tells us that she anointed Christ's feet. He isn't denying the other parts of Christ. She probably anointed his whole body. She certainly had enough oil to do that. He brings attention to his feet. The reclining at table, you know how they would have sat. They didn't sit on chairs. They reclined, and their feet were pointing away from the table, positioned so that now when she comes to, to his feet, they're, they're exposed. And she comes to his feet, and... Uh, she does an act of, of profound humility and devotion. She anoints his feet. 
so full of gratitude, so full of wonder at the glory of his person, what they've just seen him accomplish for Lazarus, so full of a sense of his worthiness, of her unworthiness to be standing before him who is the resurrection and the life. She stoops and does something that not even a lowly servant would do. Go back to chapter 1. Isn't this what John the Baptist said? Chapter 1, look at verse 27. Verse 26, John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That would have been the lowest of low jobs for a servant, a slave. And John says that he who comes after me, later he says, ranks before me because he was before me. It's the eternal God become flesh. I am not worthy to stoop to untie the sandal. He so recognized the supremacy of Christ, the Lamb of God, so great, glorious, worthy as Christ, that the greatest of prophets, John, said he's unworthy of even the lowest position in service to Christ. And here Mary gets it. She's not responded to this sign with a craving for more signs. You see? She's not responded to this sign with a sense of her own deservedness. She's not responded to this sign with an air of superiority. She responds with the recognition of the truth that she's in the presence of God's Messiah who has loved her immensely. Because he is, she recognizes her own unworthiness. She doesn't act here that's meant to shout her unreserved devotion to him her humble submission to him as the glorious Christ. Such a contrast with the disciples in chapter 13, isn't it? I think that's why John emphasizes the feet here. What happens in John 13? What does Jesus do? He washes their feet. The 12 disciples are so slow to get it. In chapter 13, they're still unmindful of Christ they ought to be. They're unmindful of their identity as they ought to be. They're still scrapping for honor. No one humbles themselves to wash one another's feet, to wash Christ's feet until Jesus stoops to do it. But Mary gets it. She's, no lo- she's not yet fully aware what Christ will accomplish on the cross, but she has come to know his glory and her identity as an unworthy recipient of grace. And this is the point. That awareness drove her to the lowest position she could find. Look at verse 3. She didn't just anoint his feet with oil and this ointment. She wiped it with her hair. For a Jewish woman to let down her hair in public would have been astonishing. It signaled her unreserved devotion to Christ. Craig Keener said it like this. Her prized feminine hair, uh, 
she used to wipe Jesus' feet when normally only servants would touch the master's feet. It indicated the depth of her humble submission and affection for Jesus. She just doesn't only wipe his feet with a cloth, she uses her hair. My friends, that is how we ought to respond to the worthiness of Christ and to our identity as unworthy recipients of his grace. So let's ask ourselves, are we scrapping for the lowest position possible under the feet of Christ in order to express our recognition of his worth? our unworthy reception of his grace. She held nothing back. She lavished what was most valuable to him. She humbled herself in the most humbling way she could find. Or are we more like the disciples in chapter 13? We haven't yet been struck with an awareness of the glory of Christ his worthiness, our unworthiness before him. The good news is the disciples, at least 11 of them in chapter 13, were still true disciples, as hard-headed as they were. They still had to learn a few things. But Mary here, she gets it, and she's a model for us to live by. So how do you view your relationship with Christ? consciously aware of his glory the glory of his person combined with the lavishness of grace that he's shown you and then how do you respond to that the story tells us that if you get it if you really get who he is and get who you are your response will be more and more like mary's but to the extent that we fail to bring ourselves up under christ like this in a way that humbles ourselves in devotion to him, that finds ways to bring ourselves down, to, the ex to that same extent, we failed to grasp his glory. We failed to grasp our identity. So test yourselves. The story is meant to illustrate how true disciples relate to Christ. But how, what does that look like practically, right? So I think we get the principle, but, but practically speaking, how can we examine our lives for this? How can we put this into practice? Let me show you a way. Go over to chapter 13, verse 14. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet of illustration of what he's going to accomplish for them at the cross verse 14 he says if I then your Lord and your teacher have washed your feet you ought to wash one another's feet go over to verse 34 he explains what he's talking about a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so there it is, in response to the way I've loved you, you also are to love one another. 
So what does this look like practically in our lives to live more and more like Mary acted towards Christ? It looks like unrestrained love for the people of Christ. His body, Jesus' body, is no longer here. We cannot do exactly what Mary did, right? But his body is here in the form of the church, in the form of the people of God. And the point is to say that your affection and humble submission to Christ in response for his work for you is primarily displayed in your humble affection and service toward one another. In other words, if you're unwilling to love this way, it reveals that you would not love Christ the way Mary did. Because it's the same heart attitude. It's one which recognizes my unworthiness to be a disciple and recognizes he is worthy of every bit of unrestrained devotion and submission. So test yourself. After studying and getting the lesson ready yesterday, I came home and the Lord tested me. I understood it in my mind and uh, he exposed me in my heart. Um, just ways I discontent, unsatisfied, hold on to frustration when things don't line up the way I want. Can I not sacrifice even a little for the worthiness of Christ? That's what's driving our lives, in other words. He's worthy. He's worthy that I lay everything down in obedience to him and love to others. Do you have limits on the expression of your humble love towards Christ? Do you have limits on the expression of your humble love to one another? How eager are you to express to Christ the recognition of his worth and your unworthiness? Or how eager are you to lay your life down as an unworthy slave who's been abundantly mercied for one another. Two are inseparable. It's easy to mouth these words. The proof that we've really recognized his worthiness, what he's accomplished for us, is that we live out a life of humble service and self-denial in the body to one another. That's what must progressively define our, our lives question that should be driving me is how can I display his great worth in my unworthiness? That's what I mean you'd be asking every hour of the day. How can I display his worth in my unworthiness? That is what Mary is, is doing here. Or is my life focused on saving my reputation? Don't want to give myself to those things that would be beneath me or take me down a few pegs. Mary recognized Christ and she willingly went to that level. How far can I go to express how worthy he is and how deeply grateful I am to know and bow before him? That's what Isaac Watts said in his song, Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my heart. Mary gets it. She's a model for us as true disciples. Let's move on. <clears throat> The scene is now abruptly changed. Um, we haven't heard a word spoken up to this point. It's been silence. And now in verse 4, um, the silence is broken by a false disciple. 
who responds to Christ and his disciples with envy and contempt. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas reveals his supreme love for money and low esteem for Christ. It's a false disciple. John says he was one of his disciples. There it is, with this mixture of true and false disciples together. John calls him the one who betrayed him. D.A. Carson says, like this. So that's the skip one. Must not have it. I think it's in your outline. It is as if they, the gospel writers, cannot recollect anything that Judas said and did without also remembering that he was the one who ultimately betrayed the Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. The kind of heart which would do that is shown to us in this passage. It was a heart which craved money and was blind to the glory of Christ. And, and the contrast now between Mary and Judas could not be starker. Right? Mary recognized the worth of Christ and she gave what was most valuable. And Judas had no taste for the glory of Christ or grace. No, he had a taste for money. He couldn't care less about Christ's honor and he rebukes a faithful disciple who's honoring him. Look at this heart at work again in verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Given some more new information here, um, the disciples apparently had a money bag that they carried. Would have collected donations from other faithful people uh, that would support the ministry of Jesus. They used the funds to help um, supply their needs, but they also used it for almsgiving. Um, and Judas was the treasurer. And uh, we find out here that um, he was a thief. He would help himself to it. Um, so certainly he's thinking, man, if only Mary donated this, we could have sold it, cashed it in money, put it in the money bag, and I would have had quite a helping to help myself too. This deep craving. The face of Christ would rather his own selfish ends than the glory of Christ. Mark and Matthew tell us that this deep craving, it was in response to this event, that he goes out immediately after this, almost as though he couldn't get this, he's upset, angered, and immediately from this he goes and plots with the Pharisees for 30 pieces of silver how he can betray Christ. It's a false disciple. And Jesus responds to this in verses 7 through 8. He reveals the purpose of Mary's anointing. And uh, he foretells his death. Look at verse 7. So Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always of me. Jesus speaks now for the first time in this story and he rebukes Judas. He knows who Judas is, what he's about to do. But then he commends Mary's actions for something very profound. He says, 
she um, has uh, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Um, now I don't think he's saying that she should save some of it to use for his burial. She's already poured it all out. There's none left in it. So that's not what he's saying. Um, perfumes and ointments were, were, were normally used to anoint dead bodies, right? To help with the stench of, of decay. Jesus says Mary's action was in preparation of his body for for burial. And Mary, the rest of the people there, they, they didn't fully understand what Jesus was about to accomplish. She probably didn't even know that he was going to die in six days. Um, she intended this as an act of supreme devotion to Christ. But like Caiaphas, um, she her actions went beyond her understanding. Um, they were more appropriate than she realized. And, and that's where Jesus directs their eyes, to his approaching death. The, the ointment Mary lavished on him was the first step towards his burial. And I think the point is to teach us that what Mary did before his death is what true disciples do in response to his death. We act like Mary, we live like Mary because of his death primarily. Go over to chapter 19, verse 38. Jesus is crucified, he dies in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, the disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had come to Jesus by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 liters. Same word in Greek, in weight. Christ's death is foreshadowed what Mary does. It's also done in response to his death by faithful disciples later. So go back to, to our passage. Jesus says, as for the poor, you always have. You don't always have me. Um, Jesus isn't saying that you shouldn't give to the poor. He obviously is commending it. He wants to point out how appropriate Mary's actions were. Listen to D.A. Carson here. Were a mere mortal to claim such priority, can you imagine if anybody said, you always have the poor, but you're not always going to have me. And can you imagine the, the, the arrogance that would, that would be there? Carson says he would be very ill or unspeakably arrogant. Jesus speaks this way as a matter of course, not only because he sees his cross and burial on the near horizon, but also because he knows he is to receive the same honor that is due the Father. Mary's actions were appropriate and right because they pointed to his near approaching death. They're appropriate because he is not just man, he is God made flesh. I think the point is to say it would have been inappropriate at this time for her to give this to the poor. It would have been inappropriate to do anything other with, with this than to do what she did. That is how worthy Christ is. And as the contrast, the first contrast between true and false disciples, look at the next one very quickly. We do these verses 9 through 11. We get the second contrast. 
between eager faith and, and calloused rejection. Look at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Same evening, a large crowd comes. They find out Jesus is there. They come to wherever this dinner is taking place. And uh, they want to see him. They want to see Jesus. They're enthusiastic. But they don't just want to see Jesus. They want to see Lazarus. I don't blame them. I think I would too. Uh, we get here a picture of, uh, of eager faith compared to callous rejection of the... Uh, of the Pharisees, but we also get this little section. It's giving us a model of discipleship again. Look at verse. Look at verse nine. We're told that the new life of a disciple serves as a witness to bring people to faith. These people came on account of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Look at verse eleven, because on account of him, many of the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus has received new life. Just as all disciples receive new life from Christ, and through the witness, the witness of his person, many people are coming to Christ. That's the model for true disciples who've come to know Christ. It's also true that it sets you up to be in danger of the unbelieving world. Look at verses 10 through 11. The hard hearts of the leadership threaten the life of Jesus and his disciples. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So powerful was his witness. So on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing. They're ready to kill him. It's irrational hardness. We've seen this over and over. Um, here's living proof before them. And they reject it. It's not even an option for them. Jesus and those who bring others to Jesus must be killed. So that's the paradigm for discipleship. We got the first contrasted paradigm for discipleship, and we get this one, a paradigm for discipleship. Disciples identify with Christ. They bring others to Christ, and as a result, they're hated by the world, and they will share in the death of Christ. Craig Keener puts it well here. He says, the narrative, verse 10 through 11, rings with irony. Jesus went to Judea, risking his life to give life to Lazarus. Now Lazarus' new life may, life may cost him his life. The paradigm for disciples could not be clearer. Those who follow Jesus must be prepared to die, for the world will hate them and wish to kill them. But faith would not be decreased by such martyrdom producing new life. The sign of Lazarus' new life brought others to faith. That is the sober reality of a disciple in this world. We're, we're driven by the worthiness of Christ. We're driven by everything he's done for us. Our life is laying ourselves down in humble devotion to him. Yet we need to know that it will bring opposition. It brought opposition from Judas, and it brings opposition from the world who will want to kill us because they wanted to kill Christ. And that is how his Passion Week begins just as we had expected to, true and false disciples. They're beholding his glory more and more. And it's a model for us. And it prepares us to be ready 
As you lavish Christ with devotion, be ready from false disciples around you who will oppose you for that. Be ready from the world who will hate you for that. So any questions, comments? Thoughts? Ethan? Just like with regards to what Judas like his proposition, like how the ointment should have been used, kind of just explains how, I mean, I, obviously it was, they, I mean, even you're saying Mary didn't necessarily know that, but she was doing the ointment, that she was just doing it for burial. Yeah. So it's like, in a way, I mean, how, how would you kind of distinct? So I guess in that moment, kind of, it's I mean, good. obviously we can now because we can look back at it, but just in that moment, it's like, well, in a way, yeah, sure, it sounds like a great motivation, but, mm-hmm. I mean, or great reason. Sure. Sure. Yeah, so it's interesting. And Matthew and Mark, when they look at the story, they, when they record the story, they, uh, they actually mention that the other disciples joined in. So Judas says this, and they all sort of agree. Yeah, yeah. Why is it wasted, right? And I think either way, whether he's about to die or not, like that's the significance, that's the profound significance of it that he points them to. Um, just the appropriateness of the honor of Christ. All this banquet was there for the honor and glory of Christ. Everything he's just accomplished, what he's revealed himself to be, he is the resurrection of life, he is the true Messiah. Um, the love and mercy he's lavished on this family, um, just the appropriateness of our actions and to be callous to that. Just reveals a profound blindness to to Christ and His person, His glory. So, very good question. And, I mean, and Jesus wasn't at this point. Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. He really did. Yeah. So he knew the nature of the question, right? Mm-hmm. And he clarified it. Yep. And I mean, it seems like a lot of these are recollections that didn't make sense at Absolutely. the time. Yep. So yeah, I don't think know. any of the disciples knew it was Judas, and you know that from chapter thirteen. But look around, like, who is it, right? They, they have no clue. They don't know anything about Judas stealing from the money bag or anything. Jesus probably did, and Jesus knew his heart. Um, and uh, so yeah, the disciples don't get it, but yeah, Jesus saw right through it. What was going on there? But it's so. interesting that Jesus didn't say something to Judas mm-hmm. then about, well, I know your real reason for mm-hmm. wanting the yeah. money. But he, he just said, Admitted the, the idea of yeah. the poor. That was the yeah. topic that Jesus went through. Mm-hmm. That he knew. I think because of the timing, he couldn't. Yeah. And he couldn't um, expose him yeah, at that point. Yeah. And yeah. It's just amazing the profound love of Christ. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get to chapter 13. He knows that Jesus is about to do it. He, just, he washes his feet. Yeah. Judas, Jesus washes yeah. Judas' feet. He yeah. loves him. He gives him time after time to repent. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, so he's patient with false disciples. So and then, any other questions? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting just when you were talking about the value of the ointment. Mm. And I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming she probably had that even before Lazarus had died. Huh. And obviously didn't use it That's on really his good. body because they mm. even said like don't don't go in there because the body would be mm. 
so she obviously didn't use it hmm. for him, her own brother. Yeah. So I don't know, I feel like that kind of just maybe gives an idea of just the value that that probably yeah. had. That's a um, very significant observation. I had not thought about that. I, I think it's also kind of yeah. the other thing you read about Mary. It seems like she's always by Jesus' feet. She is. Yeah. But, exactly right. Every instance, actually, we find that she's on his feet. Sweet. So perhaps there's something more there. She kept it for the day of my burial. Right? She was saving it for one day to use for Jesus. We don't, we don't know. Amen. All right, guys, let me pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. Oh, Lord, press on us the sense of his worthiness. It's worthy that we lay our lives down. We couldn't go too low. Help us to be proactive, Lord, here to love him and lavish him the love and thanks and honor he deserves. Prepare our hearts for the service to come. We love and thank you, Jesus.